BFA body must be out enjoying the last camping weekend, taking their kids back to school, and visiting family, or maybe just avoiding Jim Melnick's sermon. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll carry on. I'm going to start off with a story this morning that I heard uh, um, from a, a TV evangelist. It's kind of fitting this morning with our, our group being so low. But there was this uh, preacher who was starting his ministry in a brand new church. And uh, he showed up and he was waiting for everybody to, to show up. But it was in a small country church and it was harvest time. And uh, people were out in the, the fields harvesting their crops. And one old gentleman showed up. And uh, so the preacher, he said to him, well, there's only one of you here. I prepared a sermon, but I don't know if you want to hear it, just hear by yourself. And, and so this uh, older guy, he says, well, I'm no preacher. I'm just an old retired farmer. But, you know, if I had a load of hay and just one cow showed up, I'd still feed her. So the, uh, the preacher took that as his cue and uh, his encouragement. And he started to preach and preach and preach. And two hours later, he enthusiastically ended with an amen. And so he asked this old guy, he says, well, how did I do? Did you enjoy this morning? And he says, well, I'm no preacher. I'm just an old retired farmer. But, you know, if I had a load of hay, I wouldn't go dumping the whole thing on my cow. So fortunately, I don't have two hours worth of notes here. I've just got 30 minutes. So that's as big as my load of hay is this morning. But I grew up on a farm. I grew up on a farm and my dad grew corn. And he grew corn well. In fact, I may be biased, but I think he was the best corn farmer that there ever was. In fact, you could have called him a corny farmer, and he would have taken that as a compliment. He could have planted a field full of pumpkin seeds and still raised a bumper crop of corn. That's how good of a corn farmer he was. People, I think, today have lost the seriousness of what it means to be a farmer. In the Bible, the Bible is full of analogies and stories all about farming. And uh, whether you look at the Old Testament, the New Testament, there's stories of farming, right from Joseph and how farming played such a big influence on the life and the birth of the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus used analogies about farming. People back then knew the life and death struggle of farming. They knew that if your crop failed one year, you went hungry. If your crop failed a couple of years, you're going to start to starve to death. Today we understand what agriculture is, and especially in a city like Timmins, where there's very little agriculture that goes on, we understand what it means to be a farmer, but we don't understand what it means to be a farmer, to rely on that crop for your livelihood. Well, this morning, we're looking at growing. We're looking at growing in wisdom. And I want to take us this morning on a journey through growing in wisdom as farmers. So I want you to take off your city slicker hat this morning, put on your farming cap, and try and picture yourself in the seriousness as a farmer of what it means to grow a crop of wisdom. The seriousness of growing wisdom I heard it said recently, education is what's left over when you've forgotten all that your teacher has taught you. Well, wisdom, wisdom is knowing what to do with the knowledge that you still have left over. 
You see, knowledge and wisdom go together, but they're two separate things. And what we're looking at this morning is wisdom and growing that wisdom. And with this topic, I was given four subcategories. You see, growing in wisdom is going to fall under the categories of adversity, counsel, reproof for correction, and honey. And I looked at this and I thought, honey, really? How am I going to work that into a sermon on growing in wisdom? Honey. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like that uncle you have in your family. Everybody has an uncle in their family, that quirky uncle. You don't know how he ever became a part of your family. But when you think about it, if he was ever not there, your family just wouldn't be your family. And that's what honey is. Honey can kind of mean different things to different people. Case in point, um, when we first moved to Timmins, uh, we had some friends who, who lived up on uh, Cameron North, and they had three dogs, three beautiful golden Labrador dogs. And they were going away for a long weekend, so they asked uh, a young uh, lady to look after their house. And wouldn't you know it, one morning, one of the dogs took off out the door, running down the hill on Cameron North. So here's this young lady in her house coat, running down the street yelling, Honey, come back! Honey, come back! True story. Honey means different things to different people. But ho hopefully this morning, we'll find out how honey relates to growing in wisdom. Well, what I want to do this morning, because we are working through the Proverbs, I'm going to take a, a verse or two from Proverbs and see how that kind of applies to growing in wisdom. But I want to partner that up with a verse from the New Testament. I want to merge the Old Covenant with the New Covenant a little bit in our discussion this morning. So we'll see how that goes. But the first topic that we have, adversity. And this is something that's so cool. I didn't tell Wade, I didn't tell Dave what I was speaking on this morning. I didn't even give him the topics. But Wade comes up here, and he's speaking about adversity. This last song that we sang was all about adversity in your life. And here we have our first category this morning of adversity. Reading from Proverbs chapter 24, verse 10. If you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? It's just a little verse. If you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? Well, farmers have a motto. And that motto is, next year will be better. Doesn't matter how bad this year's crop was, how much it failed, next year will be better. I've never heard a farmer say, maybe next year will be better. It's always, next year will be better. You see, they have faith that their crop will return the next year. And if the next year the crop fails again, it's, next year will be better. They have that faith through the adversity that their crops would return. Well, let's take a look at a verse in the New Testament. This one's from James chapter 1, verses 2 to 7. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any one of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But 
But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed in the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. All too often, trials amongst us produce moaning, complaining, and groaning. Well, this type of response does not contribute at all to Christian maturity. Trials are not to be seen as tribulations, but rather as testings. A test is given to see if a student can pass, not pass out. And that's one of the important things you have to remember about trials, about adversity that you will face. Well, how do you pass this test, these trials that God sends your way? How do you not only pass them, but how do you score high on them? Well, the one who brings the right attitude to the trial, the one who understands the advantage of the trial, and the one who understands where to obtain assistance will certainly end up on God's honor roll. You see, trials, as it says in James, are to be faced with an attitude of joy. Trials should not be seen as punishment, calamity, or even a curse. But rather, trials need to prompt rejoicing. And not just some joy coupled with grief, but pure joy. It's important to understand that James didn't say the person should be joyous for their trials. But rather, in your trials, be joyful. It's hard to see the joy during a trial. I mean, this is a human emotion, a human trait. When we're going through trials, it's hard to see any joy from what we're going in, and what we're going through. But see, that joy comes not from being in the trial, but rather from facing the trial. Because facing the trial develops perseverance. And it develops perseverance by testing your faith. As the expression goes, what doesn't kill you will only make you stronger. Just as the athlete punishes his or her body, breaking it down to build it up stronger, so we too go through trials. We get broken down a little bit, but we come out the other side a little bit stronger as well. And hopefully a little bit more faithful. So God knows that without testing, we become weak and flabby and have not much use to him. In a sense, we're athletes in God's kingdom. And as athletes, we require training in order to be on our best performance day after day. As a Christian, you will face trials simply because you are a Christian. Dave read about that this morning in the persecution of one young man just for being a Christian. And some Christians are living in a land that is extremely hostile to Christianity. As Christians, you'll face trials because even though we are not of this world, we are in this world and we're not immune to the trials that come along just because of the world, the way it bones and groans amongst us. But the advantage that we have over the world is that, as James put it, we have someone to ask for wisdom that allows us to find the joy in the trials we face. We don't go through this alone. 
And that's one of the secrets that Christians have. But how does God send us wisdom through our trials? We must have somebody to counsel us. Well, who is that? Well, that leads us into our second category this morning of counsel. Reading from Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5. Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance. If you are wise, you will listen to discerning words and you will get guidance. Farmers know how to ask for advice. I remember as a young boy going with my father to an experimental agricultural station that was in a town near our farm. And with him he had a jar and inside that jar was an insect he'd never seen before. And he took that insect to the people. This was before uh, the internet, YouTube, Google. He had to go to somebody who had expert advice on insects. And he asked this person not only what this insect was, but was it harmful to his crop? As well, my dad would take soil samples sometimes, and he would get them tested to see what the pH level was of the soil and whether or not he needed to spread lime on the ground to balance that pH level for the crops to grow. When it came close to the time for harvest, my dad would take samples from the corn. And this was uh, not the kind of corn that you eat on the cob that we grew, but rather this was a corn that went into things like corn flakes, corn starch, corn syrup, and even ethanol alcohol that they make it into today. And this corn was stored over the course of the winter. But if it was put into the cribs too wet, it would grow moldy and be worthless the next spring. So he would take samples in and have it tested for moisture. See, my dad knew how to ask for wisdom. But more importantly, he knew how to listen to that wisdom, to listen to that advice. And he knew how to go to the right people. He didn't take that insect to the grain elevator to get the moisture tested in his uh, insect. But rather, he took the insect to the experts who knew what it was. He took the corn sample to the experts. He took the soil sample to the experts. He knew which expert to ask. John chapter 14, verses 15 to 17 in the New Testament. Jesus was speaking to his disciples. If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will send you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. And then farther along in, verse, in uh, chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will, will remind you of everything I have said to you. God's Holy Spirit is like radio waves. In this room, there are radio waves, probably more than you could count. They permeate the whole earth. We can't see them. We can't even see their effects. You see, when the wind blows, we can't see the wind, but at least we can see the effects of the wind. You see the dust, the leaves move. But the radio waves, you can't even see them. You can't even see what they're doing. The only way to know that you have them is to be able to receive them with the radio. Well, God's Spirit is like those radio waves. You see, the world cannot see him. But as Christians, we have that receiver called salvation. And because of that receiver, we not only can see the Holy Spirit spiritually, but we can also be affected by him as well. Worldly wisdom 
comes from worldly sources. And there are times for worldly situations that you go to find worldly wisdom. If you have a question regarding your taxes, I highly recommend that you go see an accountant and tap into his wisdom. But spiritual wisdom, spiritual wisdom comes from one source. And for Christians, that source is the Holy Spirit. The Greek word that was used here is translated as counselor into the English language is parakletos. The Greek word which uh, describes somebody who will stand beside you. And as Christians, not only does the Holy Spirit stand beside you, but he dwells within you. An even more intimate relationship. He counsels, supports, and he intercedes with God on our behalf. When we don't know what to say, the Holy Spirit picks up your cause for you. I still have a hard time wrapping my head around the Trinity, but I don't have to understand how the Trinity works to take advantage of the benefits of having the Holy Spirit within me. And God's Holy Spirit does more than just intercede on our behalf with God. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 11. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another miraculous powers. To another prophecy. To another distinguishing between spirits to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and still to another the interpretation of tongues. All of these at work in one of the same spirit. And he gives them to each one just as he determines. Now while everybody has the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, not everybody is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is an extra power boost if you might like to think of it as that way, that the Holy Spirit gives to those who he wants to use for God's work within his kingdom. God has given the Holy Spirit the task of equipping Christians with special gifts as he deems necessary to carry out God's work. Now, Some believe that these verses were meant more for the early church just as it was developing and it's not really prevalent in today's world. But I believe it still goes on. Perhaps not as often but I believe that the Holy Spirit still equips people as he deems necessary with special gifts, with those power boosts. For those that he does equip, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a lifelong equipping. It could simply be something that person needs for that time, for that situation. Case in point, I listened to the Christian radio station this uh, past week, and they were talking about one man who was involved in uh, the Christian working in Cuba. And he spoke about how Cuba was a country that some thought was dying with regard to Christianity. But then all of a sudden, some Cuban Christians that were left went into the hospitals and started praying for the sick, and the sick were getting healed, not by the doctor's power, but by some other miraculous power. And the Cuban church is in an explosion now. 
In fact, this one pastor talked about how he had been tasked to take over a little church way out in the country. And uh, he got on his bicycle with his flat tire and he rode out there, pouring rain. And he thought, what am I doing this for? Nobody's going to show up. Well, he got to the church. And as he looked out, it was like a scene from a movie. Through the rain, all these people started showing up. And the church was filled with people wanting to know about Christ. But you can be certain of this. If you are like the person described earlier, whose faith is weak, like you're being tossed about on the sea, back and forth, God's Spirit will not come upon you in a special way and fill you with these special gifts. You have to have the faith and you have to be willing to let God use that faith. Faith to the Christian is like the soil to the farmer. Rich soil produces a rich crop. A rich faith produces a rich work in God's kingdom. Moving along, our third category, reproof and correction. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 12 says, Like an earring of gold or an ornament of fine gold is a wise man's rebuke to a listening ear. Well, that's one you can understand in Timmons, how precious gold is. And just as precious as gold is, is the correction from a wise person. Correction, reproof. The things that need correcting, they're like the weeds to a farmer. The things that are going on in our life that aren't right, that need to be corrected, are just like weeds in a farmer's field. They need to be pooled. They need to be thrown out. They need to be burned. They need to be gotten rid of. Because all they do is take the nutrients from the soil that are meant for the crop. Well, in Second Timothy, verses uh, 16 and 17 in the third chapter, it says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, God is inerrant. God is without error. And God's word, the Bible, is true. It's truthful. The scripture that Paul was referring to, and I hadn't thought about this before until I started reading some of the commentaries on it, but the scripture that Paul was talking about to Timothy is in fact the Old Testament. You see, Paul was martyred for his faith sometime just before 70 AD. That's about the time that the New Testament was being recorded, was being written down at 50 to 70, somewhere around that time. There's some um, uh, differing opinions as to when exactly that was. But the New Testament was just being written about that time. So it's doubtful that Timothy would have had access to all these manuscripts. So the scripture that Paul is talking about is the Old Testament. And even Jesus said, I've come not to abolish the Old Covenant, but rather I've come to fulfill it. And this is a, a lesson for us today, that the Old Testament is still appropriate for learning, for teaching, for correcting today. I've heard stories how in courthouses in the U.S., people are wanting to take down the Ten Commandments. That's still pertinent for today. Carol was telling me um, that she heard somebody on uh, the radio broadcasting how we probably shouldn't call the Old Testament old and the New Testament new, for the simple reason that when you think of something as being old, the Old Testament, 
that it's easy to think of it as no longer being relevant. It's like when you read the first chapter in a book. You don't call it the old chapter. It's still the first chapter. So maybe we should be referring to the New Testament as the first testament and the second testament to the second. The two are still intertwined and still pertinent to each other. We're simply living in the second chapter, the church age that God has. And it's not the final chapter. There's going to be a third chapter. There'll be a third testament that comes along when Christ returns. Paul's instruction to Timothy was to encourage him as a church leader and to guard against false teaching which was starting to spread among the early churches. See, Paul was referring to that Old Testament, or the First Testament, as God-breathed and and usefulness that um, could be used for the uh, teaching, correcting, and rebuking of the false teaching that was starting to spread throughout the early church. It didn't take long for that to start to happen. Now, while these words were directed for Timothy, who's a church leader, they're not only applicable to Timothy. They're applicable to today. For anybody who is reading and studying the Bible, they're applicable, and that should be everybody. Paul encouraged Timothy to use Scripture to impart its wisdom to guard the church against the weeds of the false teachers that were starting to pop up. The Bible, which is the truthful word of God, is the best herbicide that you can look to for growing a crop of wisdom. You see, any teaching that cannot be backed up biblically needs to be pulled out and to be discarded. But this is where you need to be careful when it comes to to doing this. When it comes to biblical interpretation, I caution you. I caution you dearly. While there may only be one interpretation of a Bible passage, there can be many applications. And you have to be careful that just because somebody doesn't have your application, that you uh, rebuke them or correct them because their application may be just as valid as yours. Even when it comes to interpretations, you have to be careful. As Christians, we're all prone to making mistakes. When it comes to an interpretation, and two people have two different interpretations, one of three things is going to happen. Either I'm right, you're right, or we're both wrong. So whenever it comes to biblical interpretation, whenever it comes to correction, the first thing you have to do is do so in love. Do so in humility. Do so in prayer through the Lord. I'm moving along to our fourth and final category. Honey, that quirky uncle. Well, let's take a look at Proverbs 24, verses 13 and 14. Eat honey, my son, for it's good. Honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know also that wisdom is sweet to your soul. If you find it, there is a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. Honey is like the fertilizer to the farmer. Every farmer knows that to maximize their crop, they need to add nitrogen, they need to add phosphate, they need to add potash, phosphorus, all the things that go into fertilizer. This is the corn's honey. Well, let's take a look at a verse, one of the few verses about honey in the New Testament, from Revelation chapter 10, verses 9 and 11. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. 
Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. These verses in Revelation, it's hard to see them as a source of honey, as a source of fertilizer when it comes to growing wisdom. I mean, something that turns your stomach sour. But these verses are symbolic. They're not meant to be taken literally, but rather they are symbolic in nature. And they speak of God's word and its interaction not only with John, but for those who will hear them. The part of God's word being sweet as honey is easy to understand. To those who love and obey God, God's instruction is just like honey to the soul. But why would something good for you make you sick? I've read a couple of interpretations, and here we go with interpretations. So I'm going to um, simply preface this with saying, I haven't decided on these two interpretations. One may be right, the other may be right, they may be both wrong. But I think they, they're valid enough to give them very real consideration. One explanation that I've found is that as much as John found God's word sweet to his soul, the word was not to be kept to himself. And just as the stomach vomits its contents when it is sick, John would have to spread that message rather than keep it internalized. As sweet as that message was to John, it was not for him to keep to himself. He had to get out there and spread it. Another explanation is that to believers, God's word is like honey. That message of salvation is so sweet to a believer's soul. But to those who reject the message that John was to bring to them, it would be a bitter message of divine judgment. I'll let you dig into that and see uh, which way you want to go with that. David spoke of God's law as being more valuable than pure gold and sweeter than honey. Psalm 19, verses 9 and 10. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They're more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. So how does honey help us grow in wisdom? See, it's not the honey, but rather what it represents. Just like that quirky uncle. You don't know how he made it into the family, but without it, without your uncle, he just wouldn't be the same family. Well, to the Christian who desires to grow in faith and in God's wisdom, honey represents God's word. The good and truthful word that the Holy Spirit encourages us with. And how can you help but not grow in wisdom with stuff like that on your side? The question that I leave for you today in closing is what kind of a crop are you growing? Is it the philosophies of the world that seems to change with every whim of the passing tide? In his parable of the weeds, Jesus told his disciples that soon the crop would be harvested, but before it's harvested, the weeds would be pulled out and they would be burned. And then the crop would be harvested and taken into the barn. Well, don't be like the weeds that are destined for an eternity in hell. Instead, be the sheath of wheat that is gathered into God's barn called heaven. It starts as a little seed that is the fear of the Lord and sprouts and grows, even in adversity, into a mature plant fed with the wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit and God's word and ends with the words that will be sweeter than any honey. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. So I'll call Dave uh, back up here. I think we've got one more hymn in closing, and then I'll close this off in prayer.
Our Heavenly Father, I do pray that our souls would be fertile soil and soil for you to not only grow within us wisdom, but to grow within us a faith that would be so strong that nothing could break it down, so strong that we would indeed be the mighty soldiers in your kingdom. Father, you have raised us up to be your army, and it is with uh, great joy through whatever trials we face that we can come out knowing that our faith has been our perseverance, that our perseverance will be our faith. And we come through this, Lord, knowing that ultimately we serve a mighty God who is not weak, but who is powerful enough to overcome anything. So we pray for these things, Lord, and we pray that as we go about our week, that indeed we can come back next week and say it has been good to be in your kingdom. We pray for these things in your name. Amen.